Hi, before I start this episode proper, I just want to apologize that an airplane flew over one section of the recording, so if you hear, suddenly hear fighter jets, uh, I do apologize for that. Thanks! Hi, this is Open Source Futures and I'm Eddie Chu, where I discuss current news through the lens of long-term perspectives and futures thinking. So in a previous episode, I talked about futures thinking and I talked about uh, politics as one of the buckets. And I said that there are two uh, kinds of politics that are of interest in futures thinking. So one is uh, global geopolitics, you know, international relations stuff, you know, political and military competition stuff. And then there's also domestic politics, because domestic politics does influence foreign policy. Uh, and we'll talk a lot more about talk a bit more about this. But for this episode, I'm going to focus on geopolitics. So. Uh, if you were going to listen to one on domestic politics, you have to wait for a while. Okay, so the the headlines, the newspaper headlines, you know, are usually about the big geopolitical stuff. So how countries are position, positioning with, with respect to each other and flexing here and there to make their influence and power felt. They want to tell or signal to the leaders of other countries, directly or indirectly, to side with me or them and get rewards uh, while I try to get uh, my way in your country. So yeah, a lot of it is signaling about what they intend to do and hopefully that will persuade or dissuade uh, a country from doing something or not. Okay, so uh, what, I'm, what I'm going to share a bit is about the realist perspective. Uh, I think that's a very useful perspective uh, in international relations. So a lot of it is about just uh, military and security uh, concepts. So the, one of the key, key concepts in this is that um, countries want to seek their own security and they will do that either through themselves, through their own military capability, and if that's not sufficient, they want to rely on uh, a foreign power. So here in Asia Pacific, where I'm interested in, so a lot of it is about uh, obtaining some uh, security with the United States because that's the offshore power and uh, with the protection of US with the US military uh, they obtain protection from their immediate neighbors or from other uh, regional powers so for instance uh, South Korea seeks American security against their neighbor uh, North Korea uh, Japan's offshore balancer is the United States although it also has its own uh, military capabilities. Um, so the US is also the offshore balancer in Europe uh, because uh, of what Russia has done in the past uh, in entering Crimea and uh, some other aggressive moves. So um, and also be, uh, as a as the as the response to sorry as part of its obligations to NATO, uh, which is of course the the historic uh, partnership with various other Western European countries against the Soviet Union. Uh, the US is also usually thought of as the offshore balancer in the Middle East, and there you can see um, how it's often uh, provided protection for Israel against Arab states in the past, uh, and now also uh, um, being based in Saudi Arabia, protection against Iraq back in the early 90s. And 
uh, here you still have the American presence as uh, as kind of an offshore balancer against Iran and other potential uh, hostiles or or in the counterterrorism uh, stuff. So offshore, so America in this sense is the offshore balancer for many regions. So you can see why people call it the global policeman of sorts. Um, but that has kind of some unintended effects. So if you are China, uh, you might think that the U.S. is trying to encircle China militarily, right? So if you have U.S. forces in Japan, in Korea, in some parts of Southeast Asia, and then in the Middle East, um, it feels actually that U.S. might be surrounding China. Uh, also, because the U.S. is a global navy, it can patrol in places like the, the Straits of Malacca or the Indian Ocean, uh, shipping lanes where much of oil uh, and fossil fuels from Saudi, from the Middle East area flows into East Asia. So if you're in China, you will want to find, uh, figure out ways to get around using uh, sea routes, especially if you're still developing a navy. And that's one perspective of the Belt and Road Initiative. So the Belt and Road Initiative is this uh, huge infrastructure project across Central Asia and South Asia and the Middle East going to Europe. So you can see um, if it isn't able to develop the, its navy quickly enough, or it can use it can use some of these uh, railways or infrastructure across Central Asia in the Middle East going into Europe. So that's one way to think about the Belt and Road Initiative. You can also view it generically as a global infrastructure development project um, to uh, invest in infrastructure in all these uh, countries that would could do with uh, economic development. Okay, and here in Southeast Asia, the story is slightly different. So U.S. has had a historic presence here because of the Vietnam War. Um, but lately also, China is also uh, getting more involved in Southeast Asia. So you might see things such as the South China Sea, um, where uh, the Southeast Asian countries are um, worried about the Chinese presence. And so they, they have to figure out whether they want to, uh, how they want to live with China. So uh, you get things like um, wanting, to, wanting to attract the US military presence here. So that acts as a kind of an offshore balancer uh, to deter China from more aggressive actions. Uh, that's one way to look at it. Um, some other countries would be more okay with the Chinese presence if that's accompanied by economic uh, uh, by economic incentives. So in, a, in any case, the presence of the U.S. military here in Southeast Asia is generally seen to be a, a way for Southeast Asia countries to bargain with China. So uh, about the kinds of presence that they want and what kind of Chinese actions they want to see. So uh, you get this kind of um, balancing that Southeast Asia countries have to do is they figure out how to attract the US here but also China as well and how they want to economically diversify so that they are not totally dependent on China. Uh, so you get you have you see things like the ASEAN EU free trade agreements. So even though it might not change things substantially, but at least it's a way for ASEAN as a whole to engage with EU and slightly reduce their dependence on China and, and that reduces China's bargaining ability in Southeast Asia. So you get all these kinds of uh, multi-player dynamics which are, are 
which, which really shows that the world is really quite messy. And it also shows that, um, you know, the world can have three major powers and countries will try to figure out how to balance between all of them to gain their own benefit. So it's not just that, just because whatever the three global powers would do, uh, that means things will go, but really it's often the case that even within the three powers that are competing among themselves, uh, it's possible to still have agency and uh, when small countries can get together in, uh, say, regional associations like ASEAN or uh, across uh, across the Pacific as with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, so you get you can get uh, agency as well. Uh, yeah, so it's not just about how big countries come together, but it's also how uh, various countries can have some kind of negotiation or bargaining power when they interact with uh, the big three. Um, so, obviously, with the big three, with uh, EU, US, and China, uh, all of them are different, obviously. Uh, so the US is, of course, the biggest economic and military superpower. It still is a superpower. It can project power across the world. It has the US dollar is the, is the reserve currency, is the de facto kind of global currency. Um, and it has tremendous diplomatic power. It created several global institutions um, that are vital to global operations. So it's not just IMF or World Bank, but things like SWIFT, the interbank transfer system. Uh, so you, and of course, American companies are known for technological leadership as well. So things like Google and Facebook with their AI as well. So there's China, there's, sorry, so there's US and then there's China, which is playing a global role increasingly in diplomacy through things like the Belt and Road Initiative, through its, uh, through its creating partnerships with different parts of the world. Um, it's got very, it's got partnerships with various regional fora. So, uh, it, it, it has summits with uh, the entire African continent, with countries in the African continent. It has forums with uh, Latin America as well. It's got Central Asia, Middle East. It's got its own forum, independent of the U.S. So these are ways that it tries to build its own international institutions to uh, magnify and amplify its own power. And then, of course, you have the EU, the grouping of 27 countries uh, with a GDP that I think it's probably slightly bigger than China uh, because the UK left it. Um, so still impressive diplomatic and regulatory power, less so on the security side. They've only got, what, one aircraft carrier because of the French. Um, but it's interesting because the French and the British have aircraft carrier leasing, ar leasing arrangements, so they can borrow each other's aircraft carrier when needed. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a side story. Um, but they are held together through common values, common history. Um, so it's pro, it's sometimes can be seen to be pro-US, but really it's also trying to be more independent. It's got its own massive research program that's very impressive, something called the Horizon EU program. And, you know, European companies are also uh, technology, technological champions in their own right. Uh, obviously, they are not so advanced in AI, but... You've got the British, uh, DeepMind is, was based in the UK before it got bought over by Google. So, uh, oh yeah, and you have things like uh, NXP and uh, ASML, the, the companies that make uh, the chip making equipment. So not chip makers, but makers of chip making equipment. And that's extremely, extremely vital 
to the global chip making industry. So it's like TSMC buys stuff from ASML or NXP. So that's the kind of um, importance that we're talking about, you know. So uh, important strategic actor, important regulatory actor. So when you've got things like privacy laws coming up from the EU and uh, America's tech giants have to obey them, the French, the, presumably the Chinese tech giants also have to obey them to some extent, even though their markets might not be in Europe. So you get this kind of different kinds of powers, uh, even though not strictly security speaking, but also impressive economic and regulatory and diplomatic influence as well. So when you get the three of them, you know, bargaining with each other and bargaining with the rest of the world, so that's the kind of complexity we're talking about in geopolitics. It's not just what uh, what the three of them do, it's what the three of them uh, might do together or with other middle powers. So middle powers would be, uh, would be powers such as Japan, Russia, um, maybe you want to include, uh, sorry, definitely the UK, um, Australia maybe, um, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. So these are powers with important influence in selective areas. So, so these are that's I'm I'm saying all this to kind of illustrate the complexity of geopolitics today. That it's not just an easy thing of, of whatever the U.S. says or whatever the EU says or whatever China says. It's really what everyone says together, and small even small countries can have some kind of bargaining power. Uh, by joining other countries together. And I haven't, haven't even added the domestic angle yet, which of course creates another a layer of complexity. So it's not just uh, what the Biden-Harris administration wants, it's what the Biden-Harris administration can do together with Congress, with the Department of Defense, the Department of State, uh, and public opinion plays a role as well. Um, so. So, for instance, something like uh, nationalism, nationalism, um, that can affect how countries want to, how how much countries want to be aggressive in their diplomacy, in their coercion towards other countries. So you see, when countries sweeping up nationalistic elements, when uh, when something is happening, so that can that can help the situation. It can force other countries to recognize something or. Uh, helps it with bargaining with something else, but it can also be escalatory, it can make a conflict become worse because governments find that they cannot step down from their committed positions. So uh, you get a lot of these things and um, so it's not just in the security area, it's also in trade. So trade is sometimes, sometimes part of uh, international relations and Domestic opposition can prevent laws from getting passed, from getting trade, agree trade agreements from becoming ratified. So that was the situation with the, with the uh, TPP. The clock ran out. The Obama administration had to go. The Trump administration came in. Uh, uh, the U.S. left it. Um, yeah, so it's, it's very messy. And it's not just a simple thing of why can't, why can't country X do Y? You know, it's because... Maybe there are other calculations involved with third parties. Yeah, and of course, when 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 you're talking about democracies and you're talking about elections, so change in governments do happen. Different political parties have different foreign policy preferences. So you might see that um, in Asia, parties are defined by whether they are supportive of America presence or supportive of Chinese investments. So you get things like that. 
and when of course when the political party changes then the foreign policy changes as well and then you get huge shifts in regional balance of powers right so that was just to give you a sense of how how messy geopolitics is but even then there are some abstract trends that you can still get out of it so for for instance over the past 20 years i think the biggest change has been the emergence or re-emergence of multipolarity so it's away from the u.s dominance from say the 1990s to say the 2020s uh, the re-emergence of China as a regional power and on the global stage is definitely a huge factor. And perhaps in the next two decades, it might become a global power in the likeness of the U.S. So one reason that the U.S. has such powerful global presence is because it has presence in so many different countries. Um, you could make the same thing could happen in China. It's got uh, its least uh, land in Djibouti in East Africa, something like that. Um, there are suspicions about what its port in Guada could do or what its port in Hamadonta in Sri Lanka can do. Um, currently, it's got no fixed permanent base around the world. Uh, oh, but, but it might have a naval facility in Cambodia. Um, so again, the, uh, it's slightly unclear what kind of things it might have uh, in those places. But yeah, you can imagine if it has global interests and it needs to secure them, then the next natural step is to have uh, military bases in different parts of the world. Uh, the U.S. is the U.S. of course is still the the dominant global power in the world. Global, uh, military bases all around the world, facilities as well, so that helps with its uh, global power projection. The EU is slowly becoming more coherent in its foreign policy. It's, it, now has kind of a process to get uh, the different countries together to be aligned um, and you can see it trying to invest more in its military through NATO but uh, I think it also has an EU defense force or something like that um, and you know and France is a is a major naval power people don't recognize it but France still has um, parts of its territory in the Pacific particularly new places like in New Caledonia or Tahiti so it's also got a kind of an inter-regional or international uh, military footprint. And for all that, I've already mentioned all, this, all those things about how the different countries or the different powers have different kinds of powers, right? So it's not just economic and security, but also regulatory and standards. Um, so, you know, doesn't mean that the U... So we get into this situation where it's not that the U.S. wants, wants, wants a global policy to go one direction and the rest of the world to, will follow, but it will have to bargain with the EU, with China, with Russia, UK, Japan, India, and so forth. Oh yeah, and of course, India is a, is a major regional actor. It's got, it's capable of some military projection, um, some aircraft carriers, and of course, it, it's got its nuclear triad by now. So. Um, it's a important regional actor, and uh, like I said, like I will say, <laughs> uh, it's going to become probably going to become the the world's most populous country in twenty fifties. And if it can get its economic development process going, then uh, it's likely going to also become a global economic actor as well. So, yeah. So that's how. 
you know, that's how I think about this global balance of power. It is not a straightforward thing. And then when you're just talking about the security and military balance, about what happens in the region, then you're talking about various, a whole set of other things. You're talking about weapons platforms, range, logistics, sensors. It's a whole other discussion. And then you also have the strategic balance as well, which is not just talking about nuclear weapons uh, states, um, but you also have things like cybersecurity, uh, offensive cyber, cyber operations, where countries hack into each other's uh, government and other covert networks. Uh, so that's the risk of how that might spiral into conflict or how that could have collateral damage across the world. So for instance, um, when, when there was that uh, cyber attack on Iran's nuclear centrifuges, part of that code, which is, uh, which is meant to go into uh, uh, industrial systems control code, that, that, uh, that, got, that got spread out be beyond Iran. So a lot of countries also have had that kind of code. Um, so the same code that affected Iran also infected other countries. Um, so you can get these kinds of cyber hacking incidents and uh, how that weaves into warfare, into your conventional warfare of bullets, missiles and bombs. That's, a, that's still a developing question and I know that countries have uh, developed different kinds of doctrines. So for example, Israel. Israel treats uh, cyber attack as a conventional attack. So I think it responded to, uh, was it Hamas or something like that? It responded to a hacking operation from one of the, the anti-Israel forces with a conventional bomb on, on those hacking facilities. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're just talking about how all these kinds of geopolitics uh, discussions are actually extremely messy. Um, but I've tried to show you how multipolarity is, the, is, is currently the dominant trend. And... Um, and, and also because, like I said, the US, UK and China all have different facets of power as well. So it's not a straightforward discussion and it uh, hopefully helps you to see uh, in everyday headlines uh, that there's always something beyond it, a lot more going behind the scenes in how countries are positioning with respect to each other. So, and I've only just been talking about countries um, and there's such a thing as global companies, right? And global companies increasingly have to uh, have some kind of uh, international relations of sorts. And they need to work with different countries and uh, different regions when it comes to standards. So not just, uh, not just your, you know, the regulations in each place, but increasingly how it applies to technology development. So something like EU's privacy <coughs> regulations is something of, of interest and also just generally speaking industrial standards so whose industrial standards to follow and adopt you might have to adopt all of the industrial standards um, and so you have to configure your company to to match those so for instance <clears throat> you have something like apple which is trying to thread the needle in u.s china relations so it um um, U.S. administrations have wanted Apple to try to manufacture back in the U.S. and they've made some attempts at doing so. And they've also had to match regulatory standards in Europe and U.S. and they respond to lawsuits uh, in various parts of the world. So that's something they have to think about and with the new carbon-related regulations that are coming along, um, 
it's it won't be unsurprising for me to see like how the different car companies will have to adapt to that kind of world as well, because different countries have different decarbonization standards or uh, fuel efficiency standards and all of that, and that is going to come into the picture as well. So, the the questions uh, that you might think about is which countries are trying to set standards, set global standards, not just in technology but also in the environment, and also. Uh, uh, what kinds of data sharing standards, what kinds of privacy standards, um, what kinds of payment standards even. So a lot of these things are in play and that defines the field uh, that you might have to look into if you're looking into futures projects. So I'm sure you have picked up by now, but this sense of geopolitical power, it is a dynamic concept. Uh, things are static, things are not static, they are constantly changing. And a lot of it will depend on how uh, countries can harness the energies of their own people to develop the economic influence, the technological influence, which in turn uh, will support their military capabilities, their security capabilities. So uh, that's generally uh, how I will look at geopolitical power, but also uh, geopolitical power is also something that is emergence. Emergence in the sense of it is the result of other underlying basics such as uh, demographics, education, the economy, the society. Um, so yeah, so you can think of how, how countries can sustain those influence and how can they do that over time. And then there's obviously the time element as well. Uh, because if countries have developed interest, develop things um, that they cannot sustain, then we get into uh, the situation of overstretch and that's where we get signs of withdrawal, so reducing their commitments uh, while they shore up uh, domestic weaknesses. So I'll definitely break this down further in future episodes um, and I think the next one will be on demographics. Thank you and as usual, if you want to contribute to this, uh, there's the Patreon at patreon.com slash opensourcefutures, one word, that's opensourcefutures. And you can always buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee slash opsourcefutures, that's opsourcefutures, one word. Thank you and see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>